Here I have a box inside of, of our boxes, either one or the other, morality. For some, they believe in a morality that is, that is, uh, that is temporary and is based on individuals. And so when they look at right and wrong, they say right and wrong is determined by time and by society and what a person feels is right and wrong in a certain situation. And so when they view morality inside of their box is this viewpoint that says, hey, what's right for you is right for you and what's wrong for me is wrong for me, but it doesn't have to line up. On the other side of that are people who, who see a universal morality. They say morality is uh, above time and it's above individuals and it's above society. And, and for many of those people, uh, many people sitting here in the church context, we understand our morality through the character and the nature of God and what he has told us to do through his word. And so, so people fit within this side of the box. And, and so we have these beliefs in our box. Let me just give you one more that's inside of our box uh, that is the belief that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. Now, what's interesting about this last one is, well, the first, you have polar opposites. You have people who say there's a universal morality. You have people who say, no, morality is definitely relative and it's based on the individual. When it comes to, when it comes to the idea that good should happen to good people and bad should happen to bad people, it seems that no matter where you fall in first, you kind of agree with that statement, right? For a lot of people, those things that are inside of their box come through either be a belief in, in, in a God, in, in a Christian God a lot of times, or, or a, not a belief in those things. And so you see a separation. I'm, I'm a God-fearing person, and so I believe that the world is in existence through a Creator, and I believe in a universal uh, morality that extends to all people in all times. And then on the other side, you have people who say, well, I don't believe in God. I, I am not a Christian who follows God. And so, therefore, I, I see the world coming in uh, through chance. And, and I believe that, that what's good for you is good for you. And what's good for me is good for me. But those don't have to be the same thing. But then, oddly, at the end of this, the last piece that I'm, I'm pulling out of the box for you, all of those people seem to say... I believe in justice. I believe that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. In fact, the truth is that the number one question that I get as a Christian and the number one question that I get as a, as a pastor is simply that. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? You see, for the people in that first camp that I described who don't believe in a God and, and don't see a creator up there, uh, it doesn't create a philosophical or theological dilemma for them. They don't have to answer the question of why a good God would allow bad things to happen to good people. But it does create problems. Don't think that it doesn't. Because if you look at bad things happening to good people and you don't believe in a creator, then it leaves you with some serious questions that must be answered. Is there any meaning to our suffering? I mean, if there is no God up there and good people are suffering, then is there any meaning to that? You have to ask the question, does how we live our lives matter at all? Does it matter the choices that I make if simply bad things are going to happen no matter what, based on chance, based on whatever you want to call it? If bad things are going to happen to good people no matter what, then why does it matter how I live my life? And so for the people who say, well, I don't believe in a God, I believe we're here by chance, they have a 
some serious questions to answer. But they're not philosophical or theological questions. They're more personal questions. I mean, why do I try to live a good life? Why, why are we here? All of those types of things. But for people that call themselves Christians, we have a philosophical and theological dilemma with this. When we say that we believe in a God who is all-loving and all-powerful, it begs the question, why does an all-powerful and all-loving God allow for bad things to happen to good people? This question comes up so often. It's unbelievable how often this question comes to me. And and here's the thing about it, is I want an answer that fits inside my box. Even on our website, there's a great video that you can watch that answers the question in a way that fits within my box. It, it, It explains it in a logical, straightforward way. And it says, look, this is the answer to your question. And it's a fantastic video. It does a great job. But over the next uh, eight weeks, we are studying the book of Job. And when you read the book of Job, there's a big, big problem. The book of Job and the things it says do not fit inside of my box. I mean, it's in the Bible, right? And so you think it would fit inside my box. I really like it. And so you think it would be inside of my box as a God-fearing person. But it doesn't fit inside of my box as a God-fearing person. And here's the crazy thing. It doesn't fit inside the box of people that don't believe in God at all. And so there's this book in the middle of the Bible that doesn't seem to fit with the things that we want it to fit with. And so over the next eight weeks, we are going to be greatly challenged. Let me just give you my background on the book of Job. Uh, I grew up in the church, and so most books of the Bible, there was some background information for me, right? And so when I uh, got old enough to start reading books of the Bible on my own, I'm kind of like, I know what happens at the end of this, right? I mean, oh yeah, David's going to win the fight. And so it kind of takes away the suspense. For some reason in my Sunday school classes, nobody told me this story of Job, this story of tragedy. I don't know. Uh, maybe they thought it was too tough, too depressing, too overwhelming. I don't know. But but nobody told me about it. And so in high school, I think, is the first time I, I read the book of Job, maybe early college. And, and I'm reading the book. Right. And let me just give you a little bit of background. I'm not going to give too much uh, away. I, I want it to reveal itself as, as we go along together. But uh, there's a man named Job. OK. And Job is a God fearing person that lives as good of life as anybody we've ever known. That's made pretty clear throughout the, the, the book. And Job has everything going for him. He's totally rich. And we'll read about this in a second. I mean, he's rich beyond uh, maybe anybody in his land. Some people even believe, based on a a different scripture, uh, that that he might have been the king of his land. He was kind of the overseer of his land. So this guy, even if he wasn't a king, is is really a, a rich guy that has a great family life, has absolutely everything going for you, and then it is ripped away. And then the majority of the book is Job arguing with his friends about the question, why could this bad thing happen to somebody that seemed so good? And so the whole book is is centered around this this very question. And so here's the crazy thing. The first time I read it, I'm reading it, and, and, and you understand the first three chapters of Job specifically are really easy to understand, and then the rest I, I'm still working on. Hopefully we'll have something to say by, by week number three, but it's very difficult. But I'm reading it, and, and it goes Job's argument, and then his friend's argument. Job's argument, and then his friend's argument, and it kind of flows like that. And the whole time, 
I'm on the friend's side. There's three friends. And I'm going, these guys are right. I mean, these guys are telling Job the reason for his suffering. How can Job be so arrogant to say the things he's saying? And so I'm agreeing with them the whole time. And much to my surprise, I get to about chapter 41, and God opens his mouth for the first time in the book, and it was like he was saying, hey, Chad, you're wrong. I mean, just as clear as he could possibly say it, and I won't tell you who he says is right, but the answer is even surprising and definitely does not fit inside my box. This book is going to leave you wanting more. But I think it's going to stretch us and, and just make us say, okay, maybe the, the easy answer is not always the best answer. Maybe my A plus B equals C doesn't always fit with the Bible, right? It just doesn't always go as linear as we want it to go. And so as we go through these next eight weeks... The question, why does God allow for bad things to happen to good people, will not be answered. But it will be deeply explored. I I think that that we will go through an exploration of that question that hopefully in the end will bring you comfort and hope and peace and even a little joy in the midst of your suffering. But it will not answer the question, why does God allow for bad things to happen to good people? Now, that's a difficult thing to hear, right? Because we want that question so badly. And why do we want that question so badly? Because usually when people say, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? What they really mean is, why, when I work so hard and I've been so good to my company, did God allow for me to be laid off? I mean, really, when that question comes up, it's more along the lines of, why... If my my dad was such a great guy and, and lived for Jesus, did, did God allow him to die at such a young age? I mean, it goes like this. Why, when I've been striving to do the best that I can, did God allow me to get sick? And yet I look around at other people who don't seem to be as good as me, and they're fine and healthy and happy. It's really difficult for us not to get an answer because... Because this question is not just some theological question. It, it's, a, it's a personal question for us. Why, God, are you allowing me to go through this when I am trying to live my life for you? Or even if you're not living your life for God. The question's still there. Why, when I do so much better than somebody else, I work hard and, and I seem to live a pretty moral life, why is God allowing this to happen to me? In the book of Job, we see one of the greatest tragedies of all time, but it doesn't answer it. It just explores it. And it's so deep and so well written. In fact, uh, I'm way off on my sermon notes, but let me quickly find a couple quotes about this book just to inspire you before we start reading it. Uh, the, this is uh, by Daniel Webster, who was a 19th century politician that was actually known for his uh, oratory, oratory skills in our country's history. He said this, the book of Job was taken at, uh, excuse me, the book of Job as a mere work of literary genius is the most wonderful, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or of any language. A French poet named Victor Hugo said, tomorrow if all literature was destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should have Job. Alfred Tennyson, one of the most popular poets in England's history, said of the book, the greatest poem, whether of ancient or modern literature. 
The book is filled. It's filled with literary devices. Uh, the, the writer of Job, whom we don't know, it's the greatest book ever written by somebody who, who we don't know. There is no other book where, the, where, where it's so beautifully written that the person said, didn't say, hey, by the way, I just wrote one of the greatest books in history. It's the only book like that. But he, he seamlessly goes between all kinds of rhetoric. Let me just read to you a couple that are in the Bible um, See if I lost my place. It is filled with proverbs and narrative and riddles and hymns and laments and curses and even lyrical nature poems. It's a, it's a very fascinating book because of his ability to take different types of literature and just put them all together seamlessly in a way that makes sense. But again, the one thing that's not in there is the thing that we would probably like most. Straightforward answers to the questions that we have. We know this about the man named Job. He's a a guy that loved God, and he lived somewhere around Israel. He he wasn't in Israel, but he was somewhere around that area. The book was written way a long time ago. We can just leave it at that. There's lots of debate about that, but it's, it's pretty widely believed that it's one of the first books written in the Bible. He probably, Job, the man of Job, was a contemporary to Abraham. And so you see throughout the book uh, a lack of a lot of Jewish things like a temple and like their king and uh, like prophets. You see that in a second he's sacrificing for his children and there's no priest doing that. And, and so just put yourself thousands of years ago and, and we're going to meet this man named Job who, who is pretty awesome. And, and I hope as we explore his life together we will be able to explore the question of why God allows bad things to happen to good people. Now, I won't read the whole book. Um, It's a really big book. And so if I tried to read every chapter every week, that's all that we would have time for. Uh, But we do uh, need to read chapter 1 in order to set this story up. And we'll read chapter 2 next week together. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Job chapter 1, verse 1. And I will read it to you in its entirety. It should be coming up on the screen. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming the earth, throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came. The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind came in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his clothes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The number one question that's going to come to your minds is why? Right? You look at this and you say, this guy loved God. I mean, this guy was passionate about God. So passionate about God that that he was offering sacrifices for his children in case they sinned. The Bible is clearly telling us that this man lived a blameless life. And God allowed this to happen to him. Everything that he owned and his own flesh and blood, his children, to die and be ripped from him. Why? We even want to ask the question on an academic level. Why is Satan in the presence of God? Right? We want to ask, why is God acting like like this is some kind of wager? Why does God bring up Job to Satan in the first place? Don't you want to know? But the book of Job, in the first chapter specifically, is not concerned with the why. It is only concerned with the how. And it doesn't fit inside my box. I mean, in my box is something that says God needs to answer the question, why for me? God needs to tell me why he would allow for something so bad to happen to somebody so good. But God's word doesn't tell us that. It simply says how. It says how Job it went through it. And, and it shows us how we should go through it when bad things happen to us who are trying to live good lives. And so quickly, let me just examine the three things that Job does. First, he mourned the losses. Seems like in our world we're scared of that. We want people to get right to the healing process. You see it in the way that we respond, right? I mean, you, you go, uh, hopefully I don't do this, I've learned through the years, but, but you're with somebody whose loved one has just passed away, and, and you want to say something like, oh, it's going to be okay. You want to say something like, oh, This is going to get better. It's just in us to want to stop the mourning, right? I I don't know what it is, but there's something in us. And and sometimes, and I hate to admit this, God-fearing people are the worst. Because we we have reason for hope and all of that stuff. And so we we want to stop the mourning in people's lives. Oh, they're in a better place. You know, oh, oh, you know, just think about how great heaven will be someday. 
And so we try to shut down this morning. But here is Job, one of the greatest men that the Bible ever records. One of the few people who are called in the Word of God a servant of God. It's, it's a pretty high praise, right? And the first thing that he does when he hears about the loss of his children as he goes through all of the ceremonial customs of mourning, shaves his head and he rips his clothes and he falls down on the ground and he's sad. I just, I just want to encourage you just, just to know that, that when you who are striving to live for God or not face something that is bad, something that hurts, something that is a tragedy, it's just okay to be sad. I mean, it is okay and normal and right in the eyes of God to mourn the bad things that happen in your life. We don't need to, to skip to some Christian rhetoric and, and pretend that things don't hurt, you know. And, and we don't need to, to, to say, well, I have hope, and so right now in this moment, I'm totally okay with, with this sickness or this loss of this job or this loss of this love. And we don't need to be those people. We're allowed to mourn the difficult things that happen. God gave us those emotions. God brought those into us. God is emotional. Jesus wept when he looked over a city that was not living for the Lord. And so the first thing that Job does is he has the most normal human reaction to something so terrible and so bad. And that is that he just allows for himself to feel horrible. He's crushed. He's sad. He's depressed. And that's normal. The second thing that we see in Job is that Job recognizes that everything that he had was from God. So often, we look at the bad stuff that takes place, the losses in our life, right? Whether it be a loved one, or, or whether it be our health, or whether it be a job, or whether it be something else. And, and there's this tendency inside of people, especially people who don't know God, to look at God and say, how dare you? How could you take this from me? But Job seems to recognize something that needs to take place before we start blaming God. And that is that God gave him those things in the first place. Now look, I'm not trying to say, oh, well, God gave it to me. Now I'm not going to mourn. I, I, I just said, look, mourning is normal. But to recognize that the good things that we have in the first place are from God is very important in the response that we have towards God when bad things happen. We need to be people that before tragedy strikes, we look at the things in our life that are good and we thank God for them because we recognize that they are from God. I really believe that when we read that Job was up, upright and righteous and pure and holy, when we read those things, I think a big part of that in his life was the fact that he recognized that the gifts that he had, the riches and the great family and, and the power that he had and the respect that he had in his, that he had in his culture, I think that, that early on in his life he apparently recognized that those were all gifts from God and it helped him to live for God no matter what circumstances he faced. And so we see this, this mourning and this hurt and this, this crushed feeling and we'll see in a second the response of worship, but in the middle of that, is a recognition that the good things we have in life are from God. Far be it from us to blame God when things are taken away, but forget to thank God when things are going well, right? And so I say to you, first, mourning is normal. We see that in Job. Second, we need to recognize that the things we have, even the life that we live, is a gift from God. And the last thing that Job does 
as he falls down and he worships God. That's pretty crazy, right? I mean, he falls down and worships God. And in some ways, it just doesn't quite fit in our boxes. We can almost squeeze it in, right, and say, well, maybe if I work at it, I can worship God. But Job recognizes that circumstance does not dictate who God is. Even if God ripped everything from you right now by the very nature of who He is, the Almighty that that is over everything on our world and who has created each of us, God still absolutely 100% deserves our worship. God deserves our worship for who He is. Even if God had not graciously reached out to us, God still deserved our worship because He is the Almighty Being who gave us this world and the lives that we live. And Job recognizes that. And what's so inspiring to me is that Job recognized that before the coming of Jesus. For those of us who live thousands of years later, we can look back on the story of Jesus. We can see that God, the same God that Job worshipped thousands of years ago, loved us enough to send His only Son, the person Jesus, to die so that our sins could be taken away as we accept that gift and give our lives to Him. We know that. Job didn't understand that. In fact, a lot of what he cries out in the rest of this book calls for somebody like Jesus. I need a Redeemer. I need a life after this life because this one's no good. And we have all those things in Jesus. And so all the more, I think those of us who can look at the new part of the Bible, the New Testament, and see the story of Jesus brutally dying on a cross to save us from our sins who will give our lives to Him, we should be able to look at God and say, hey, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much you allow to take place in my life, you deserve my worship. And unlike Job, we not only say you deserve my worship because you are the Almighty Creator, we can say, no, you deserve my worship because you are the Almighty Creator who loved me so much that you sacrificed in order to have a relationship with me. We want to know why. But in this chapter of Scripture, and really throughout the whole book, God is concerned with how we respond to bad things happening to good people. And today, I know each of you, this is the easiest, easiest thing to talk about because there is not a person in here who will go, man, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, I've, I've never had anything bad happen to me before. So what is Chad talking about? Each of us have had terrible things that impact us even years later that have gone on in our lives. And God is, is looking at us in this first chapter saying, look, you don't need to know why, but you do need to know how perfectly normal to mourn, to cry, to be hurt, to feel pain. But you also need to remember that the good things that we have in life are a gift of God. And no matter what, no matter what you face, you need to strive to worship God actively. That is what God expects and demands from us. You guys pray with me. Lord, uh, I just pray that we would be people who, even when we don't understand the why and we want to know the why, we would be people, God, who strive to live our lives for you, God. God, let us be people who, who are focused on the how, God, who, who really just want 
to, to do everything that we can to, to serve you no matter what, God. And, and God, I just want to just say thank you for the gifts that you have given us, Lord. You've given us so much. And, and so often, God, we are, we are concerned with what we don't have and what has been taken away from us, God. But, Lord, let us be people who, who are focused on, on, on thanking you when things are good and, and when, we, when we have things going right so that, God, when the bad things come, we can look at you and say, Naked we came from the womb and naked we will depart. And recognize, God, that, that you are the giver of all good gifts. Lord God, I pray for, for the people who are currently hurting in this room right now. And we're going to go through this study over the next eight weeks. And maybe all of us are hurting in some ways. But there are people here, God, and there will be people here as we go through this study, God, that, that, that are just really hurt right now. And they are mourning, God. Things in their lives, the losses that have taken place, the hurts, the failures, God. And I would just pray that you would especially be with those people as we go through this, God. And and Lord, while it won't give us the why, I pray that in the study and the and the exploration, God, they would find comfort and hope and, and they would turn their eyes to you, Lord. Father, we love you and we thank you for the good things you have given us. And we pray that we would worship you no matter what because of who you are and how much you offered us on that cross. We pray these things in your name.